Welcome to the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre podcast. I'm Natalie Pearson and I'm the Curriculum Coordinator here at SEAC. Today I'm joined by Associate Professor Nicole Curato from the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. Nicole is a good friend of SEAC, having participated as a speaker at our annual Politics in Action event a few years ago in 2017, where I remember that she gave an excellent wrap up of a very busy day. Her work focuses on how democratic innovations can take root in the aftermath of crises, particularly in communities recovering from disasters and armed conflict. Her latest book, titled Democracy in a Time of Misery, From Spectacular Tragedy to Deliberative Action, is published by Oxford University Press, and it won this year's Virginia Moralau Excellence in Research Prize from the Philippine Social Science Council. Nicole, congratulations on the prize and thank you for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. I'm so excited. I'm sorry that we can't meet in person, but uh, in these coronavirus days, we're all doing things on Zoom. So we really appreciate you joining us. And we're looking forward to talking a little bit about uh, your research in the Philippines and what's going on in the Philippines at the moment. So I thought we could start with just getting you to give us a general sense of what's going on in terms of how COVID-19 is unfolding in the Philippines and, and just give us a sense of the basics there. Right. Well, the Philippines COVID-19 story started actually with a proud declaration from the country's Secretary of Health that the Philippines is a model country in fighting COVID-19. But that self-congratulatory tone did not last long. So on March 16, President Duterte declared an enhanced community quarantine in the entire island of Luzon. So ECQ, or enhanced community quarantine, has been incorporated in colloquial conversations on COVID-19 in the Philippines. Basically, that means international flights were banned, military men were deployed in checkpoints, non-essential services were shut down. So essentially, it was a lockdown. And the framework for that government response is articulated in a law called Bayanihan to Heal as One. Bayanihan roughly translated means cooperation in Filipino. And I think there's a more profound pre-colonial anthropological explanation for the term Bayanihan. But rhetorically, at least as far as the crisis in the Philippines is concerned, um, my reading is that this law emphasizes the importance of cooperation, obedience, and national solidarity. It's obvious in the title of the law, Bayanihan or cooperation to heal as one. So basically, the law grants the president, I think, 30 special powers to address the crisis, uh, which basically allows the government to comply with the mechanisms basically directed by the WHO. It also gives emergency cash aid to low-income families affected by the lockdown, a 30-grace period for paying rent with no penalties. So in a way, it's kind of similar similar to other countries. Duterte formed an all-male COVID-19 intra-agency task force, mostly composed of retired armed forces chiefs and high-ranking military officers. And yeah, I guess today Manila is in the running for the world's longest and strictest COVID-19 lockdown, as one article puts it. So there's so much to unpack, but I'll leave it there for now. Nicole, one of the things that you've just mentioned is that this advisory council that Duterte has put together is all male and made up mostly of retired or, or current military officers. Why does this matter? I think it matters because it really frames the government response to the crisis, which is a securitized response. This is not surprising if we think about President Duterte's flagship project, the drug war, 
the issue of drug addiction or illegal drugs is framed as a health issue in many countries. It could have been framed in that manner. But in the Philippines, it was framed as a security issue. And of course, it's not an exaggeration to say that the president did call for the genocide of drug addicts in the Philippines. And I'm not using the word genocide lightly. He did use that word. So I think the way the president approaches another health crisis similar to the drug crisis is a securitized response to the disaster or, or the crisis. So we can see military officers getting people's temperatures in checkpoints. We see sometimes police officers in full riot gear to implement lockdown laws. So I think that is the symbolism and the practical manifestation of having an all-male, mostly composed of military officers, interagency task force. You're helping us understand this is a type of war against COVID-19. How is that war unfolding? For example, what sort of social welfare programs are in place and how are they managing to respond to coronavirus? So, of course, if we look at the law, it looks like everything is in order, that they've thought about many social amelioration programs that, for example, responds to the implications of the lockdown to the livelihood of many Filipinos, especially urban poor communities. Let's not forget that Manila is at the center of this so-called war against COVID-19. And if you think about Manila, it's a place where inequality is so heightened. It's not so different from a lot of Southeast Asian countries in that sense. But if we think about the implications of the lockdown to the lives of everyday Filipinos, then we can see a disconnect between government response or prescriptions versus everyday life. So example, uh, if we think about the most simple prescription of wash your hands regularly, that actually is not possible if you live in a slum community with no running water. If you say you have to practice social distancing, again, that's not possible if you live in a slum where the size of the house is the size of a box. If you say you can't work and you just have to stay at home, well, for many poor Filipinos, staying at home means going hungry and dying of hunger. So in a way, there has been, or actually not in a way, literally, there have been a lot of violations with lockdown laws because Filipinos have to earn a living. And these have been met by very punitive responses from the police. There have been a lot of arrests. There have been reports of brutality when it comes to these arrests. So it really poses a huge challenge for urban poor communities in terms of how they can translate all of these prescriptions that seem to be ideal, but is wildly disconnected from the non-ideal contexts in which everyday Filipinos live. Yeah, I think that brings me to my next question, which is going back to this phrase that you mentioned about enhanced community quarantine or ECQ and how it's been enforced. I mean, the Philippines is a, a maritime nation, for example. Are there restrictions on people traveling by boat to different, different islands? Yes, so basically the entire island of Luzon is on lockdown, regardless of the transportation that you use. Of course, there's an exception. If you're the president of the Philippines and if you're feeling homesick, you can travel to Davao, which happened last weekend. Thinking about the Philippines' huge population, a lot of Filipinos actually live outside the Philippines. It's a huge diaspora. So can you contextualize the Philippines within global responses to the pandemic and how that diasporic population is managing? So labor is one of the country's top exports, and I'm included in that kind of export labor. But of course, included in this list are healthcare workers. So if we just look at the numbers, we look at the U.S., almost 16% of the nurses in the U.S. are immigrants, and one-third of these nurses are migrant Filipino workers. That's the largest share. 
if we look at the UK, the NHS workforce is around 1.5 million and 18,000 of those are Filipinos. And Australia has the same story. Some experts say that rural medicine would collapse without foreign trained healthcare workers. So if we think about the role in the Philippines in this global pandemic, I think it's both a moment of national pride and national shame. It's a moment of national pride because when people in Paris, in Madrid, or in London go out to applaud healthcare workers, then yeah, of course, they're applauding, they're showing appreciation for Filipino frontliners that basically keep the NHS and other health systems afloat. However, I think we have to be more careful to romanticize this because in the UK, for example, 26 out of the 126 workers who died of COVID are Filipinos. So are they really heroes or are they sacrificial lambs is one question that a lot of observers are asking. In a way, the pandemic exposes the ugly realities of inequalities experienced by migrant healthcare workers, especially from the Philippines. There is a huge literature on the supply of nurses from the Philippines all over the world. There's a fantastic book entitled Empire of Care. Yasmin Ortiga from Singapore Management University does fantastic work about how the educational system in the Philippines provides the steady supply of healthcare workers all over the world. But what we are seeing now actually is that the way Filipinos are constructed as the ideal healthcare worker, someone who's polite, someone who has a malleable accent that can adapt to wherever they go. There's this emphasis on the caring dimension of Filipino healthcare workers. All of this have been instrumentalized to the COVID-19 crisis. So Filipinos are the ones who are, for example, not getting proper PPEs because they're the ideal healthcare workers. They're heroic. They are okay to sacrifice. It's part of their constitution. But of course, the impact there is that Filipino healthcare workers are among the most vulnerable healthcare workers in the world. I think you've done a really good job of sketching out the tension that exists between these idealized Filipino carers and support staff and the fact that they're the sacrifice that's being made. In terms of public responses to the pandemic, you talked about how in the UK, for example, every night people go out and applaud and clap the healthcare workers. What's going on in the Philippines in terms of expressing solidarity and critiquing despite these stay-at-home orders? So crisis in the Philippines is actually a frequent life experience. That's a term historian Greg Bankoff uses. Um, he describes the country as having a, a culture of disaster, which means it's a country that has a culture of mutual aid. And in fact, there is a theory that civil society in the Philippines emerged not just because of anti-colonial movements or anti-dictatorship movements, but also because of the country's geography. So it's located in the Typhoon Belt and the Pacific Ring of Fire. So there's a danger of going it alone in a perilous archipelago. So if we take the long view of that, we can actually say that Filipinos for centuries are largely left to their own devices to deal with hazards and all the problems that come with these hazards. I guess I'm contextualizing this pandemic in the long view of disasters and crises in the Philippines because I see similarities with the way the public responds to the pandemic to how the public responds to emergencies like typhoons, volcanic eruptions, and earthquake. And I think this is how I would answer your question. The situation we have now is a situation where state capacity is weak. The state cannot respond. That's why there are informal structures of mutual aid that surface at this time. So we see soup kitchens run by religious groups. Uh, we see the fashion industry repurposing their operations to create PPEs. 
the College of Social Sciences and Philosophy in the University of the Philippines, which is my alma mater, converted their beautiful building to an isolation area for suspected COVID-19 cases. In fact, we have also celebrities who plan to auction their luxury goods to finance mass testing. I look forward to having swab tests powered by the sale of an Alexander McQueen handbag. So all of these, I think, are wonderful initiatives. But I'm contextualizing what's going on in the Philippines right now to say that these initiatives are necessary, meaning they're not just nice to do, they're necessary to do. Earlier, I mentioned weak state capacity. So the state is conducting targeted testing, but that's not enough. Local governments are moving heaven and earth to provide food packs to their constituents, but it's not enough. So why is it necessary for ordinary citizens to organize community kitchens? Well, because a food pack given to a family of eight from village leaders looks like this. It's wrapped in a red plastic bag. Inside are four canned goods, two packets of instant noodles, and one small pack of biscuits. Now tell me how a family can survive with this food pack. I guess you can sense my frustration here. We have a strong man who, on several occasions since he started office, we have a strong man who asked for emergency powers because he felt that democratic procedures and bureaucracies get in the way of development. But now this government has so much power, state capacity is still weak. <laughs> I guess I have no profound explanation about this disconnect, but I think we have to interrogate what it takes to build state capacity. And what we are seeing is a strong man does not equate to state capacity. The Philippines has continued to face this context of constant disaster and the response by grassroots organizations and religious organizations and mentioned your university and fashion institutions all getting on board. Are they subverting the government's orders in doing that or are they allowed to fill those gaps? There is an expectation, actually, for them to fill those gaps. So recently, in a press conference with President Duterte's spokesperson, a journalist asked whether the government is planning to do mass testing. And the response of the spokesperson was, the government just has no capacity to implement mass testing, Wuhan style, where 11 million Chinese citizens are tested for COVID-19. The question was asked in the context of Filipinos returning back to work after the lockdown. And the expectation is that since the government cannot do mass testing, it's the private sector that should actually implement mass testing. And this is not very peculiar to the Duterte regime. Um, the Philippines has for a long time embraced public-private partnerships when it comes to infrastructure projects. And crisis response is just an extension of this. So yes, there is definitely space to do this. Although there have been accounts as well of volunteers who, for example, organize these soup kitchens being arrested because they're violating lockdown laws. And dare I ask, is any funding going from the government to these initiatives to support them in implementing testing, for example? So the government's official strategy for testing is targeted testing. I have yet to fully understand what that means and how that's different from mass testing. Um, but I think in terms of the delivery of services, it's the local governments that are expected to provide the social amelioration package to their constituents. I think this is one of the fascinating developments, especially in, in the national capital region at the moment, because we can really compare how different cities fare depending on how well-equipped and how professionalized their uh, local governments are. So there have been mayors who are standing out in this entire process. So for example, the mayor of Pasig City is this millennial mayor 
who's just super popular and super woke, super progressive, getting a lot of attention from the media because he, for example, said everyone will receive social amelioration program or benefits from the social amelioration program, including LGBT families. That is super progressive in the Philippine context, whereas some mayors are actually critiqued for being too slow and too selective in the distribution of aid. So that's worth monitoring in terms of how some, how would you call that, like superstar mayors, I guess, are being created in the national imaginary, depending on how they respond to the pandemic. That is certainly something worth keeping an eye on. And how wonderful to hear of that inclusive approach by that particular mayor. What was their name again, sorry? He's Vico Soto. I loved your description of him as millennial and woke. <laughs> Absolutely. So, well, this brings me to my next question, which is about the long-term legacy of the pandemic to democracy in the Philippines. And I'm particularly interested in transformation of governance structures, whether it's the national level or this more local level, as we've just been discussing. I think my assessment is that the pandemic gave the Duterte regime the justification to further tighten the control of security forces in the capital. For example, the protest of urban poor communities against government response to the crisis was violently dispersed by police in full riot gear. Incidents of police brutality, like what I mentioned earlier, uh, were reported nationwide uh, with violators of the lockdown arrested, humiliated, and beaten up. So I worry about the implications of the pandemic to the professionalization of the security sector in the Philippines. There have also been reports, and this really bothers me, of citizens, ordinary citizens, who speak up against the Duterte regime's handling of the pandemic over social media. These people were arrested. So it raises serious concerns about the curtailment of free speech at a time when public scrutiny is most needed. And meanwhile, the politics of double standards continue. High-profile violators of quarantine rules remain unpunished. So, for example, Aki Duterte ally and former Senate president flouted quarantine protocols and accompanied his wife to the hospital despite him testing positive for COVID-19. Can you imagine? The National Capital Region's police force shamelessly posted pictures of the police chief's birthday bash on their Facebook page, violating rules on mass gatherings, social distancing, and liquor ban. That is um, quite unbelievable. But it is, it did happen. And in President Duterte's last national address, he said, yeah, but he's a good guy. It's not his fault that people greeted him happy birthday. It's absurd. And then, then there's the preferential treatment of Chinese investors. So among the essential services given the exemption to operate during the lockdown are Chinese online casinos. And on top of all this, the pandemic did not halt, but instead furthered uh, the regime's illiberal project, which is manifest by the shutdown of ABS-CBN. So ABS-CBN is a media giant that Duterte singled out in his previous speeches because they're biased against him. So the last time the network went off air was in 1972 during the Marcos dictatorship. Today, the network is just down. It was forced to go off air because its franchise was not renewed. And there are many implications of this. Obviously, there are press freedom implications. But aside from curtailing press freedom, the absence of ABS-CBN means many Filipinos living in far-flung far areas have no access to news and information, not only about the pandemic, but there's just no source of news. The silver lining is that the habits of public scrutiny continues despite all of these threats. 
So for example, data nerds and policy wonks, uh, and I mean that in the most admiring and affectionate way. So these data nerds, for example, created a COVID-19 citizen budget tracker. This initiative is powered by volunteers and really the aim is to monitor government spending during the pandemic. And one of the most important findings of this initiative is that the government spending is quite slow. For example, I think a month after the ECQ was imposed, only 21% of the reported health budget was spent. And, you know, it's the kind of utilization of data that allows ordinary citizens to constructively engage with government at a time when hyper-efficiency is required. And of course, on a more confrontational level, uh, we see a lot of forms of digital protests so, for example, hashtag Aus Duterte was trending worldwide on Twitter. I think this was after President Duterte's speech when he ordered the military to shoot anyone who creates trouble during the lockdown. And that just infuriated a lot of people. And then there was a study that argues that this is actually an organic hashtag. It wasn't because of a troll farm or a fake trending topic. It was organic, driven by real people online. So, yeah, I think it would be interesting to see how the kinds of democratic engagement evolve uh, during the pandemic. The way I see it, it really has two ways of engaging, a more confrontational, sustained scrutiny of how the Duterte regime manages the pandemic. And then there is the more depoliticized approach, which is in the form of philanthropy and solidarity and care. I think both are important in this moment. I did just have a sort of follow-up to uh, your discussion then about the closure of the news broadcasting service and the reduced access to news by Filipinos, particularly in remote and isolated areas. What I'm interested in is whether social media is filling that void. I know the Philippines is a highly networked country when it comes to things like Facebook, and you've also mentioned Twitter. But you also talked about the crackdown that's happening in terms of freedom of speech on social media. So... Are we seeing social media fill that news void or are people scared to use it? Well, I think in areas where there is access, social media has become a go-to resource. So for example, ABS-CBN continues to broadcast its news through YouTube. And I think it broke all sorts of records when it comes to news consumption by their flagship news program on social media. But if we think about the most vulnerable Filipinos, those who don't even get reception on television, but only rely on radio. So these are super far-flung areas. The consequences are so severe. They don't receive any advisory on the disaster because they only rely on the radio. And there are areas where radio signals only work for ABS-CBN radio programs, not even for other channels. The implications are really, really serious. Thank you very much for joining us, and we really appreciate your time. Yes, thanks, Natalie. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.